Thank you for listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit our website, centurybaptist.org, or download the Century Baptist Church app. Amen. As you're being seated, please take out your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. I encourage you to bring your Bibles or whatever sword that you practice with is the one we want, whatever sword you fight with is the one we want to practice with. So if you have, bring whatever, if it's on your phone or if it's at a device, if it's an actual physical Bible, bring the one that you practice with so that you can fight with the same one. We are training in righteousness every Sunday as we go to God's Word. Uh, that's why we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We want to re- see what the Bible says, what it means, and then what we're going to do about it. And that's how we train ourselves in his word. As you're turning there, today Jesus is going to talk about children, being like children in some ways. So we're going to figure out what does he mean by that. You think about kids, kids can be adorable. We were at a, a wedding recently. The flower girls that were coming down were so excited about throwing the flowers that they got flowers all over the people next to them. And there was flowers going everywhere. And they, were, they couldn't remember where to walk. It was, it was cute. It was fun. But we enjoy moments like that when children are so excited about something. Sometimes it's, they eat something new or gross. And they, their faces make a funny face. That's funny. It's worth a picture, worth a video. Um, sometimes they say funny things, sometimes they do funny things. Some, half the people who show up to Christmas musicals by children are just showing up to see what crazy stuff the kids are going to do. That's part of the, most of the fun. And I don't have a statistic on this, but I'm pretty sure that the most shared videos in the universe are videos of kids with accents. They're so cute, right? So adorable. Kids can be adorable, cute. They can be funny. They can also be kind of a handful. There can be tantrums. There could be... They could say things sometimes that you wish maybe they had a little bit of better filter on them. They can be incredibly selfish. It's all over the map. So when Jesus says one of the keys to understanding his kingdom is to understand children, we're going to have to figure out what he means by that. So we're going to read what he says, what the Bible says about what that means, and examine that from Scripture. That's what we do, and that's how we operate uh, every Sunday morning. I shouldn't, uh, some of you maybe are guests and are visiting. My name is Ethan Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm uh, not usually in this role preaching. Our lead pastor is uh, out for a couple weeks, but we will spend, keep plowing away through Matthew. We've been going for about a year and a half now, and we're just going to keep going until we're done with this exciting gospel. But we're going to read Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. If you would please stand to honor the reading of the word, I will read this as you follow along. And this is the English Standard Version I'll be reading from. Matthew chapter 18. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You may be seated. So here we see the disciples. We've watched the disciples over the course of this gospel grow up. Well, slowly. They're slowly growing up. They're still trying to figure out what it means to be part of this new kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. Uh, They're trying to grasp it, and they're still a little confused. But think about what they've seen. They've seen him preach with authority to thousands of people. They've seen him heal a multitude of different diseases. 
They've, he's cast out demons. He stood up to the religious leaders that were bullying the people. He stood up for all the people who were oppressed by the system. And then he said a couple different times, this kingdom is going to spread throughout the entire world. And these guys, the disciples, had a front row seat. In fact, they had backstage passes. A lot of times Jesus would teach something hard, and they'd turn to his disciples later and say, this is what I meant by this. So they were right on the front lines of this. It's very exciting. This is a revolution, and they have intimate access with one of the most famous people of the time. In fact, one time, Jesus said, no, it's your turn. I'm going to send you out. You go preach this message. You go heal people and cast out demons. They did it. They came back, and they were super excited. This is really happening, and they were a part of it. And there was Several. There was many of them. There was the 12. We know there was at least 70 or so that were a part of this circle that he was empowering. But then Jesus goes up to the mountain where we talked about the transfiguration and he only brings three of them and keeps singling out Peter as kind of being the leader. So these guys are kind of, okay, what's going on here? They get a little fuzzy. They slip back into a worldly way of thinking about kingdoms. And they get a little confused. In fact, what they ask here, since we're almost a football season, they're kind of asking, what's the disciple power rankings? Where do I fit in the disciples? What's my place? How important am I? And how do you get greater? How do you become more important? And that's the question they ask. So this exposes their immaturity, really. They have a childish mindset. It's like they're back on the playground, picking teams for kickball, who's the best, and they want to know who's the best and who's not. Well, Jesus, in his patience and his grace, his love for these disciples doesn't make fun of them. He doesn't come down hard on them. He, he, he takes a couple minutes to review for them what's important about the kingdom that he is bringing about, what's important about the kingdom of God. So he talks about, and we're going to talk about how you get into the kingdom, how you become great in the kingdom, and how you treat people in the kingdom. That's going to be our outline for approaching this text today. So the first question that is brought up is, how do you get into the kingdom? Verse 2, he called a child, he put the child in the middle of him and said, truly I say to you, basically just reemphasizing, this is the truth, take it to heart. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus gives them a verbal illustration, but also a visual illustration. Something about this child, doesn't say how old it was, but a little child. Something about this child, you need to remember when you talk about how to get into the kingdom. Notice how emphatic this is. Unless you do this one thing, you turn from what you're doing and become like a child, he says you will never, and that's extra emphatic in the Greek, you will never, ever, no, not never, ever, get into the kingdom. So the turn here is a distinct change. It's not just a slight course adjustment. The Bible talks, also uses the word repent. In fact, in Acts 3, verse 19, they use both. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repenting, turning away from sin, turning to Jesus. It's a significant turn. But then he says, turn and become like children. But what about children? It makes you wonder. He says, become like children, but we already, already talked about it a little bit. Does he mean cute, funny, cuddly, sweet, genuine, giggly, happy, playful, affectionate, moody, hungry, whiny, cranky, loud, selfish, violent, irrational, foolish, naive, rowdy, impulsive, overly excitable, moody? Did I mention moody? 
Do you think Jesus is talking about any of these things? That's not what the Bible teaches as being qualities we should aspire for, especially when it talks about salvation. Some people look at this passage when it says become like a child. They mean simplicity. It means simplicity, innocence, uh, kind of a blissful ignorance or a youthful naivete. But as we look at Scripture, being simple-minded is not a virtue. It's never linked with requirement for salvation. Uh, and if it, they think that it means innocence as a child. No one's innocent. The Bible is clear about that. All have sinned. Even children inherit sin from Adam, and so no one is actually innocent. It's not innocence. It's not ignorance. Ignorance is never venerated as being important to Jesus, nor is a youthful naivete. So this isn't really, we're not really landing the plane yet. What is he talking about becoming like a children, a child? Also, if you remember back to chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a similar statement. In fact, it's the same structure. Here he says, unless you become like, turn and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said both of them. Both of them are true. How do they come together? We're supposed to be like a child, but also our righteousness and holiness needs to exceed that of the most intelligent, the most well-trained and disciplined religious leaders of the time. How does that work? Let's just talk, re remind ourselves what the Bible says about getting into the kingdom. John 3.3, 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the key is being born again. And just keep in your mind, how much did you have to do with being born? When you were born, my guess is very little. Same with being born again. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And Peter wraps it up nicely in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's the common thread here? What's the common denominator? Who are we dependent on completely for salvation? God. Doesn't happen without him. So, what is it about being a child or being childlike that gains us access to the kingdom of God? Here's what I think. It's that universal gesture that a child gives when they need something or they can't do it themselves. What is that? What's one of the first words they use? Up? Up? I need help. I can't do this on my own. I need you. It's neediness. It's understanding how much you can't do on your own. When my son Isaiah, who's now 17, when he was little, really little, we were at a zoo. It wasn't our zoo, so Terry, don't get mad at me. It wasn't our zoo, but we were at the tiger exhibit, and there's a big, big, thick glass. I mean, we were safe. The tiger was just roaming around, and Isaiah was watching him. All of a sudden, the tiger got a little ornery and kind of pounced, like, pounced at the glass. Man, you should have seen him whoosh, right to Heidi and, okay, great, great, got him. He knew exactly where to go, right? Now, they, I mean, he's a teenager now, so it's probably like, come at me, tiger, let's go, let's do this. Which is why Jesus did not say become like a teenager to get in the kingdom of heaven. 
He's staring at me back there. <laughs> Pastor's kids get the worst, I know. He knows I love him. So it's not a specific quality or mood or disposition of a child that Jesus is talking about. It's their innate sense of neediness. They know they can't survive on their own. They know they need help. So becoming like a child in this sense is understanding your sinfulness, your unworthiness, your neediness, the inability to save yourself. A child realizes and and knows they can't get up themselves. They need someone to lift them. We know, we have to know, we cannot get to God ourselves. We need him to come and get us. He doesn't expect us to somehow crawl our way up to him. He knows we can't. In his great mercy, he comes down to us. The other thing about being childlike in this way is they have nothing to offer to buy their salvation or to earn it. It's not like they come to Jesus and say, I'm really good at kickball and hide and seek. Can you let me in? They have no skills. Or I I don't have anything to offer but my doll and my bike and a piece of candy. There's not a sense of earning love and acceptance. They know they need dad to lift them up. So Jesus, Jesus is not endorsing some sort of immature childishness, but childlike dependence in God alone to save. This is also important in evangelism. When you're telling someone about the gospel, you're sharing with them the gospel. Rarely is it successful to try to argue someone into the kingdom. It doesn't work, either in person or online. Nor does it work just to post some killer meme online or some quote from someone. That's not... It's not usually an intellectual moment. Think about the times that are the most uh, productive, the most fruitful in discussing the gospel with someone. When are they? At a funeral. When they're coming face to face with death and mortality. Someone died, they're thinking, okay, okay, my, my day might be coming. Where, where am I? That's a moment. Or if there is uh, a tragedy or a disaster, or they're very broken, or they've hit rock bottom. Basically, any time when they have nowhere to look but up. That's the moment. We have to help people realize they cannot do it on their own, that they need Jesus. That's the only way. Jesus rejects these grown-up ideas of self-sufficiency and pride and achievement and comfort. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. I want to ruin my fun or get in the way of my plans. He says, becoming like a child means you need to repent of your self-sufficiency, realize your neediness, acknowledge that you can't save yourself, and turn to Jesus only for your salvation. You must come to the Heavenly Father and just put your arms up in need like a child. So, how do we get in to the kingdom like a child? The second question we have to ask is, how do you become great in the kingdom? Because that was actually their question. How, who's the greatest? Really, they're kind of saying, how do I kind of make myself a little more important? Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, how is this different? Well, the first one is, how do you get in? This one is, how do you advance? What's the ladder look like? Now, Jesus has clearly established that what he values is different than what the world values. We know that from the Sermon on the Mount. 
he defines greatness differently in his kingdom. Because he says, who's the greatest? Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those are the ones who are the greatest. So the value system is completely different. So we have this short verse here, but we have some questions. I have some questions. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is humility? What does it mean to be humble like a child? And how does being humble like a child actually make me greater in the kingdom? So let's try to wrestle through this now, this verse. What is humility? Well, humility is something you kind of know it when you see it. In fact, we're drawn to it. You realize that? People with great character and humility, it stands out so much against the culture that you're kind of like, wow, that person is, that I want to spend time with that person. You know it when you see it and you feel it, but we should define it according to what the Bible says. How does the Bible define and explain humility? Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So there's a contrast. He's setting up this contrast. There's an exalting and there's a humbling. If you try to exalt yourself, that's the wrong way because then you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, somehow you'll be exalted. So realize there's two, there's, there's a dichotomy here about elevating, promoting yourself, and humbling yourself. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So he's setting up this dichotomy again. This is Paul. Selfish ambition. You're doing things for yourself, often at the cost of others. Conceit. Looking down on other people while you do it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is, again, raising yourself up or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the opposite. You're thinking about other people and not just yourself. It's the opposite of selfishness. Then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. There's a piece of humility that is outward focused, away from yourself. James 4 says, therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So not only does God warn us against exalting, raising ourselves up, he says, I'm actually against that. If you are exalting yourself, God is opposed to you, which is not a good place to be. He opposes the proud, but gives grace and mercy and help to the humble. So here's a working kind of definition of humility. When you think about humility, don't think of it, it's not just thinking lowly of yourself. Some people think humility is, I just need to think lower of myself. I'm nothing, I'm a worm, I'll add up to nothing. I'm, 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 and they, they try to press themselves down. That isn't the answer. Usually that ends up being kind of a sideshow, like you're drawing attention to yourself about how humble you are. So being humble, don't think of it as thinking as lowly as you can about yourself. Humility is thinking highly about God and rightly about yourself. So it's not thinking just as lowly as you can. It's thinking rightly about God and highly about God and rightly about yourself in light of who God, what God says and how you're related to God. Humility is seeing yourself the way that God sees you and seeing others the way that God sees them. We can only do this if we go to the Bible. The Bible is primarily, first and foremost, about God. It's his revelation of himself to us. It shows us what we need to know about him. 
It helps us to see him rightly and highly and exalt him for who he is. When we see God in Scripture and he is higher, we see ourselves based on that in the right way. And then we function accordingly by seeing others the way that God sees them. But we can only do this through the revelation of Scripture. So that's a little idea of what humility is according to Scripture. But what does it mean then to become humble like a child? This is difficult because one of kids' favorite words, they learn it very early, is mine. Which isn't humble, that's selfish. That's just looking for them, out for themselves. I'm not blaming them, that's just their world. A child is immature in thinking, physically unable to work, hasn't gained wisdom and experience, has no resources or earning power, their brains haven't fully developed so they can't comprehend concept, complex concepts or ideas. So it's not humble, they're immature, they just haven't grown up. So does having humility like a child mean that we should remain immature, weak, foolish, unproductive, and ignorant? Well, that's not what the Bible says either. Let's just look at a few verses. 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There's a contrast in speaking and thinking and reasoning. And he's saying when you grow, you give those things up and you mature in your thinking and speaking and reasoning. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Do not be children, children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, evil, but in your thinking be mature. Ephesians 4 has a long section about, this, about talking about whether we should be like children or not. In verse 13, he's talking about self, the, the growth of the church until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Lastly, Colossians 1. Paul says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So being humble like a child does not mean staying immature and weak and foolish and unproductive and ignorant. We need to grow in our faith and mature in our faith. That's clear from Scripture. Childlike humility is not childish immaturity. Humility is not the opposite of maturity. In fact, as your faith matures and grows, humility should increase. This is the old, the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. I mean, there's been news recently of stars that they're seeing now that are unbe an unbelievable amount of light years away. The more, the farther they see, the more we realize how much is out there that we can't see. We have no idea. The more you see God for who he really is, the more you see everything else the way that it really is. And it's incredibly humbling. So humility is not the opposite of maturity. Humility is the opposite of pride. Because pride puts everything out of order. It elevates yourself, it lowers God, and really lowers other people. So the key to killing pride and nurturing a childlike humility is what the Bible calls 
the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, I've talked about this before. There's a lot of different ways to think about it and definitions of it. But for today, the fear of the Lord is realizing God's power while being safe under God's protection. It's when we realize and remember and think about and reverence and acknowledge God's great power as the almighty God of the universe who made everything from nothing, who is above all things, sovereign in all that he does and just in his judgments. And we're safe under his protection because he's also our heavenly father. It's understanding his greatness while understanding that he protects us. I was thinking about this. I think I was thinking about a tank. We have a big Abrams tank. I've never been around one when it's actually working, but it's got giant treads, huge cannon on the front, tons of firepower. It's loud and dangerous, extremely effective in what it's made to do. There's a big difference if you are in front of that tank when it's attacking or if you're behind it. If you're in front of it, you're going to receive the brunt of what it was there to do, to destroy. If you're behind it, it's protecting you. Now, you still experience the shaking of the ground, the the incredible explosion as it fires, but you know it's there for you and not against you. The fear of the Lord is realizing and understanding and appreciating and worshiping and acknowledging God's great power but also that he loves you as his own child and protects you from it. Both need to be true. And that helps us grow in humility because the childlike humility is, well, just like any kid that is in a violent thunderstorm in their bedroom, what do they do? Run right over to mom and dad's room. They know where to go to be safe. When we have a fear of the Lord, we know who to go to when we need help. So developing childlike humility means you're constantly killing pride, continually maturing in your faith, and diligently increasing in the fear of the Lord. So how does this childlike humility make you great in the kingdom? If childlike humility is growing in your faith, growing in the fear of the Lord, how does this make you great? Remember, this is greatness on Jesus' terms. And he's laid out for that, us what that is. He said, whoever tries to save his life in this life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said, the last shall be first, the least shall be greatest. He's not just describing what happens. He's describing what he makes to happen. He's the one who gives life from death. He is the one who makes the least greatest. He's the one who makes the last first. That's how he operates in his kingdom. First Peter 5. Peter writes, tells us, clothe yourselves, put on every one of you humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the same quote from James. Then in verse 6 he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us. If we humble ourselves to God, he will give us the reward that we are due according to his 
terms. So if you want to be great in God's kingdom, we must fervently strive to mature in our faith and diligently nurture a holy fear of the Lord and walk in gracious humility toward all the people around us and leave the exalting, leave the attention, leave the congratulations and the commendation to God on his terms in his timing. If we try to exalt ourselves, how many warnings do we have to read? If you try to exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. You'll do it the wrong way, at the wrong time, to the wrong degree. You'll give yourself too much credit. That happens at the wrong way to do it. When we walk in humility, God takes care of the exalting. It's the perfect time to the perfect degree and in the perfect way. Our role is to be humble and faithful. God takes care of the reward. Living this life on God's terms leads to eternal life with God's rewards, and we need to trust him with that. That's how we become great, is that he makes us great. So the third question we need to answer from this passage, how do you treat people in the kingdom? Verse 5 says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Okay, so here, when he says one such child, he's not actually talking about a kid, a, a young human. He's talking about believers, Christians, because of the context. This isn't just talking about kids. This is a metaphor. He's, he gets us to think about how we treat Christians. He said, if you receive a fellow Christian in my name because he's a Christian, then you're receiving me. Every Christian is a representative of Christ. So if you care for a Christian, it's as if you are doing it for Christ himself. And Jesus takes this very seriously. Not only here, but later in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the great throne judgment. And he separates the sheep from the goats. In this case, sheep are believers, goats are non-believers. What does he say? He says, for those of you who saw when I was hungry and thirsty and I was sick and I was in prison, you ministered to me. And they said, well, when did we see you do that? And he said in verse 40, as you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you cared for the people who were in need, it's as if you were caring for me. That's how closely and seriously he takes this. Because he turns around and says, when the people who didn't, they rejected those people just like they rejected Jesus. And he says, these will go away to eternal punishment, but these to eternal life. That's serious. How we treat other Christians, those whom are, who belong to God, is very important. And we know that because of the following verse, verse 6, back in Matthew 18. What does he say? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That escalated quickly. Wow. What does it mean? Why? And why so graphic? So this passage, what does he mean by causing someone to sin? The Bible is very clear. If you sin, you're accountable for your sin. You're not off the hook if you say someone made you sin. Someone made me do it. Everyone's accountable for their own sin. But this is saying that someone who contributes to someone else's sin is also guilty. What does this look like? I can't go over every single example, but some things to think about. If 
someone seduces another Christian into sin or entices them some way or encourages them to join. Hey, come on, let's go do this. Let's do this together. That would be contributing to or causing someone to sin. Uh, You could entrap them in a sinful situation or expose them to sinful temptation. I've heard of this uh, several times where in a workplace, someone will find out that another guy is a Christian and all of a sudden posters start showing up and messages start appearing and emails just saying, oh yeah, you're a Christian? How about this? And it's just bombard them with temptation. That's enticing someone, causing them, trying to get them to sin. Another element of this that I was really trying to process, because it's so different nowadays with social media and online, it's not just actively enticing or seducing someone to sin, but think about it. If someone looks at a post or something you say or do or something that you like or approve, what do they think about that? Because approval or celebration of or endorsement of sinful behavior or sinful lifestyle could cause someone to think, you know what, maybe that's not such a big deal after all. Maybe it's okay that I would participate because this person over here, they're a Christian, they seem to be okay with it. That's one of those sneaky things we need to be careful of in what we endorse and celebrate and approve because we don't want people to see that as some sort of permission to sin. So he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him. So then I have a bunch of questions. Like, what do you mean by, how is this better? Uh, better than what? What's the alternative? And why so graphic? I just, uh, if you use a smaller stone and a little bit, a little smaller body of water, it's still going to have the same effect. You're still going to drown. But he says, a huge millstone, which is a giant grinding stone that required an animal to move. And he says, around your neck, thrown in the depths of the sea. And then he says that little word, whoever, meaning, does that apply to Christians too? Non-Christians? Same? There's a lot going on in this verse. Here's what I think it means. Jesus regularly, regularly uses very graphic illustrations to point out the severity of sin. Uh, He talks about unending garbage fires and worms that never die, weeping and gnashing of teeth, an eternal fiery furnace, outer darkness. All these things, these descriptions, to talk about the severity of sin and the severity of the punishment for sin. So here, I think what Jesus is doing is using an extreme, graphic, horrific example to display the immense gravity of the sin, of causing another believer to sin. And reminding people that this horrific sin must be paid for, either by the sinner or the Savior. By saying that it would be better than, he's not focusing on the better, but the worse. Meaning, if this horrific punishment is better than what you deserve, the actual punishment is far worse. Which is the wrath of God. So Jesus is amplifying the magnitude of the offense against God's righteousness. He's amplifying the magnitude of the punishment that must be given for that offense. He's also amplifying the magnitude of the sacrifice and the suffering that Jesus himself would bear on the cross. And he's amplifying the magnitude and greatness of the grace and mercy of God poured out freely and offered to all who would believe. He's showing us the egregious severity of sin and the incredible sacrifice of the Savior. 
And this is a warning to both Christians and non-Christians. Because um, you think, well, if a, if a Christian does this, aren't their sins forgiven? So the warning here is conviction, meaning if you cause someone to sin, you need to be convicted by the Spirit to repent of that sin and to submit to God's holiness, His sanctifying power and His work in the Spirit, and walk in righteousness. It serves as conviction. For the non-Christian, it serves as a warning. If you cause my little ones who believe in me to sin, you must repent, believe in the gospel, receive Jesus as your sin-bearer, and, and receive him as for salvation, or you will receive a greater punishment for your sin. That's what I think Jesus is doing here, drawing attention to the severity of the sin and the punishment. So, how do you get into the kingdom of God? You must repent of your self-sufficiency, realize your neediness, acknowledge that you can't save yourself, and turn to Jesus only for salvation, like a child who can't help themselves. How do we become great in the kingdom of God? You must grow in your faith, increase in the fear of the Lord, walk in humility with people all around you, leaving the exalting to God on his terms and his timing. How do you treat people in the kingdom? We must treat everyone with dignity and respect, especially followers, fellow followers of Christ. It all comes down to how you see God. If you see God bigger... God doesn't get bigger, but if you see him as bigger, you'll constantly be reminded about your inability to save yourself and how wonderfully gracious his free gift is. If you see God as bigger, you'll, tr- you'll see yourself the way that God sees you, and you'll see other people the way God sees them and treat them accordingly. If you see God as bigger every single day, you'll overflow with love and compassion towards his children. If we remain childish, God will seem small, and everything else will be bigger than it is. If we remain humble, God will get bigger to to us every single day and everything else will be in order. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is humbling. It has, this morning, done the purpose you intended it to do, to remind us severely of our need for you. And so we remember those of us who have come to you helpless in complete need and raise our hands, it reminds us that our salvation is not up to us. You're the one who caused us to be born again. For those who have not yet raised their hands to you, the invitation is always available, even now, to get rid of that self-sufficiency. I can't do it myself. i got to stop trying and raise their hands I need you, Jesus. Help us not to think about becoming greater now, but the greatness that you promise us in your kingdom for eternity. Help us to humble ourselves, to think tremendously highly about who you are and to think rightly about who we are and to act accordingly. And give us the grace to love one another in the body of Christ well. So we honor you, knowing that as we serve each other and love each other, it's as if we're serving you. Please, Heavenly Father, be bigger to us every single day. We trust that as you get bigger, everything else will be right. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.